world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. Sixty-seven times we've done this, Aldo. Sixty-seven times. I'll I'll keep finding new ways to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's going to be like to have a son, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. Less logic, Stephen. A lot less. <laughs> uh, Aldo, they found out today, but he he was holding back saying exactly the gender until until just now. Yeah, oh, that was the gender reveal party. You missed it. Dang. See, you, you may not have recognized it because there was no forest fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I mean, I mean, if you didn't burn down half a state, did you even really reveal a gender? <laughs> <laughs> we got it's desert, man. We got state to spare. You could just torch it right up. Nothing's there anyway. <laughs> just, just, just torch Moab. The arches will be fine. Mm-hmm. Can't burn rocks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, they? congratulations. Uh, um, as the father of two sons, <laughs> they're great. Yeah, um, it's so it's so weird because, like, in my head, I've been mentally preparing to have a daughter. Oh, oh that's and I a didn't bummer. Realize it. I didn't realize it until the ultrasound tech was like, "That's a boy." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, uh, okay." Oh, I, I, I imagine, I imagined part of this. It, it breaks a little bit of like that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word I want to use is like heart. No, um, wish fulfillment. Like you were gonna have your wish fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you because you like a lot of stories about the fathers and daughters. Yeah, I I can see you being being like a you know having a little girl at some point. Um, having a little boy is really great. Also, having a little girl is really great. I'm just telling you, there's no downside. So yeah, uh, I, I I absolutely can can foresee you in like two three years having a Facebook post of uh, of you with just terribly applied makeup on. <laughs> uh, I think you're gonna be a fantastic father for what for oh, yeah. whatever that's worth. Oh yeah, I'm like really excited. I didn't actually again. It's like kind of a weird paradigm shift. It's like oh. I, I was all ready to learn how to braid hair and and <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, you don't and know. Now, you might still have to. I might still have to. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. But but now it's like, oh my gosh, it, it's more likely now, or it's going to be easier at least for my you know son to get really into the same sort of like nerd hobbies that I have. Because yeah. fair or not, it's really hard to be a girl in geek spaces. And it's sad because my daughter doesn't realize that yet. She loves like, you know, comic books and superhero the the super DC superhero girls show. She loves that, and she'll play superheroes. Yeah. And she doesn't know yet that like, previously girls were not invited to this party. So I I th- I think part of that also comes down. I, I mean, it's definitely hard because of the environment to begin with. Um, but I think it also comes down to like a lack of like parental support. Because, like, it's not a hobby that, like, parents want to encourage, like, lifelong, right? Like, they kind of expect you to, like, right. get out of it at some point. So I think, I think, 
and I and granted I don't know. This is just my speculation. I feel like a lot of girls who can end up who don't stay in that geek space, it happens from both ends, right? Like they're like they don't get accepted because of the boys' club. And then like when they go get support from their parents, it's like, well, maybe you're starting to get out of that hobby. Maybe that's not like, you know, they should start buying other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So so I, so I feel like, I don't know, I think with the, with the correct support from, you know, at least one of the, the, the two sides of that, um, you know, they can, they can definitely do it. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of women who have, have, have been able to pave the way, but like at a pretty big personal cost. Um, yeah, and like, oh, I, I think I've mentioned this uh, documentary on the on the podcast before, but there's a documentary on Netflix called She Makes Comics, mm-hmm. and it's all about, like, some of the major women who have been involved in the creation of comics from, like, the very beginning. And the one that's in my head right now is uh, Wendy Peeney, P-I-N-I. Uh, she created ElfQuest. I think I've heard an interview with her. Yeah, um, she also, like, was one of the first major cosplayers at comic conventions. She wore a uh, Red Sonia costume that was really, really popular. And uh, she's actually in my mind right now because my comic book shop that I go to, they take a whole bunch of their random back issues that they can't sell. They'll stick them in a bag and they'll sell the bag for like $10 or something. And every now and again, I've bought one of those. And the last one that I bought has a whole bunch of ElfQuest comics from when Marvel had the license to print them. And it's fun. Like ElfQuest is a, it's not quite my jam, but it's interesting and it's fun. And it's like, it's, it's a good thing to kind of have exposed. Yeah. I've, to I've... be exposed to. I've heard of ElfQuest. Uh, I've just I've never really dug into it though. It's it's been going for a while. I think it might be done now. I'm not positive. Um, it's interesting and it's different from other like comic books. I like it kind of in the same way that I like a lot of old newspaper strips. Like it's a really interesting artifact. It's not quite old enough to really be called an artifact, but it kind of is an artifact. I mean, 78, that's, yeah, 78, 78 to 2018, 40 years. Okay, yeah, 40 years is old enough to be called an artifact. <laughs> <laughs> that's enough. I can be called an artifact in four years. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, it was, yeah, husband and wife team, Wendy and Richard Peeney, and uh, it was at warp graphics warp graphics marvel comics from 85 to 88 then uh, dc then dark Ho- then dark horse so huh they just oh, i didn't know dc had it from uh, tw- 2003 to 2006 i have this encyclopedic knowledge i'm totally not reading this off my phone <laughs> i'm just slowly recalling all of the uh, um, topics that came up during that interview i listened to several years ago <laughs> Well, let's let's put that encyclopedic knowledge to use and actually talk about the comics that we're here to talk about. How's about? Well, yeah. Wow. Let's do it. Look at that. Look at that. That's why he. That's why he's the guy that runs this. Happy New Year! Welcome to the Superhuman Registration Podcast. We are here to talk about some some superhumans and register them on a list, which is totally not problematic in the year of our Lord twenty twenty one. Well, boy. is it as problematic as saying the year of our Lord? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's good let's be let's be more uh respectful of everybody's beliefs the year of somebody's lord (laughs) i we're 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 talking about victor we're talking about victor von doom right (laughs) 
Oh gosh, no, that's next time. <laughs> I, I, I was I'm trying to think of of the of the lyrics to that Lord song, uh, and it's failing me. So this joke uh, is Do not you mean a joke. Royals? Royals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if if this joke had any any chance of uh, of working, it's gone now. Now Chuck Spratley can fix it in post. <laughs> yeah, I just cut up my just just cut up everything I say and just make it sound like it's the lyrics to Royals. Diamonds in the rough. There you go. There's one. I threw one in there for you. <laughs> That's from Aladdin, you fool. Ah! <laughs> Are you telling me Lord didn't write Prince Ali? Oh, God. Ali Ababwa? <laughs> no, just a whole new world. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. I saw that movie. I saw that movie four times in the theaters in 92. Uh, like, like... It, kept going back and like and I watch it today and it's still I still like it and, and um I haven't I haven't relooked at it like is this problematic because I'm I bet that it is There's, but uh, 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 I mean yeah but I was there for Robin Williams I promise <laughs> like yeah I, uh, yeah you know ironically enough Robin Williams would not have wanted you to have been there for Robin Williams Oh, it's true. Dang it. Lindsay Ellis has a really great video on Robin Williams' involvement in, in Aladdin that you should totally check out after the podcast. Because we've got a couple of books to get through. <laughs> Which one do we want to start with? I got Taskmaster right here in front of me. Well, John, take it away. So, we read the 2010? Yeah, I believe it's 2010. So this is the four-issue four miniseries, um, limited series, uh, Taskmaster. Um, Fred Van Lanty wrote it, and I want to get the art team here in front of me because they are not. There we go. Alex Garner was the penciler on the cover. Uh, Jeff De Paulo, Jeff De? I don't know. Hefte? Hefte. Um, Jean Francois Beaulieu, and I know I said that's wrong because I've not been to my lessons this week with uh, on Monsieur Henri Caville, uh, my French tutor. <laughs> The letter is uh, Dave Lanfear and, uh, for, yeah, Fred Van Lanty, so there you go. Um, this is, I think it's, like, looking at the history of Taskmaster, it's kind of a retcon of his history, because um, he's been around since Avengers number 195, which came out May of 1980, created by David Michelin and George Perez, and um, he's a he's a frequent uh, bad guy. He's kind of, like, not like a big bad if I get the sense of the character right, every time I've seen him, he's just been like, you know, a villain that is like a first act villain. He's like your cold open villain. Like, oh no, the Taskmaster. And he's a challenging foe because he can duplicate any, um, uh, he has photographic reflexes. He can duplicate any motions that he sees. So if you fight him for a minute, he's going to figure out how you fight and how to beat you. Apparently, unless you're Deadpool, because Deadpool's just all over the place. Um... But we get in this storyline um, all of the other kind of low-level uh, groups of of henchmen and assassins and other organizations that exist in the Marvel Universe are out to get Taskmaster. They heard a rumor that um, he's working for Captain America, so there's a billion-dollar bounty on his head. And they all show up at this diner to kill him. And he escapes with uh, the waitress from the diner, and the place gets blown up, and then... They're trying to piece together what happened to get Taskmaster into that situation. It's almost like the first third of Born Identity before he has any clue what's going on. Um, 
taken to the extreme because he can do a lot more than just, you know, disarm people and fight. And he can do, you know, anything he sees. Um, we find out after they head to uh, first to Mexico and um, then to, is it Bolivia or is it uh, Argentina? Boli- it's, oh, it's, it is Bolivia. Um, yeah, they, <laughs> he uh, fights Dawn of the Dead. Who is a um, gosh? Well, well, we'll talk about Don later. Anyway, he's in Mexico. <laughs> they fight, and then they go to Bolivia, and they're um, a village where everyone is Hitler, and it's <laughs> like everyone has Hitler mustaches. Um, there's an exact replica of Himmler's um, Wilsburg uh, Castle. I don't know how to Wilsburg Castle. I do. I don't speak German. Um, Taskmaster slowly gets some of his memories back. All of the skills that he learns come at the expense of personal memories. And we find out that this waitress who's stuck with him this whole time um, is actually his wife, who is his handler, who handles his money and his jobs and contacts him about his jobs, that his um, missions that he goes on. And he's really been working kind of for S.H.I.E.L.D. the whole time. He was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who injected himself with this uh, serum uh, from this uh, Horst Gorst uh, Nazi scientist. Uh, kind of a corrupted version of the super soldier serum and he got his powers that way and started to lose himself but could you know fight anybody um, using their their uh, techniques um, when he gets there he's fighting the minions international liberation front which yes it is <laughs> it is <laughs> the acronym becomes milf which when they po- tried to point that out to Red Shirt, the uber henchman. Uh, he beheads a guy and won't stand for any of that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, uh, Taskmaster is able to um, fight Red Shirt, and Red Shirt has the upper hand, but he fights him just long enough for his powers to kick in, and, yeah, he um, gives up doing that, protecting his wife and protecting himself. He forgets about his wife again and we go back to her calling him and being the mysterious voice on the other end of the phone saying you know where his next mission will take him so i thought it was a really cool little arc i thought the art was good i liked the plot um there are some issues when we talk about dawn of the dead um but uh, what did you guys think um i need to take a drink of water because i've been talking too long for me this is the best fred van lenty story that we've read D- without a doubt Yes, yes. Yeah, it was a lot more fun and a lot less cringy than some of the other stories that we've read of his. A couple of, like, not super great jokes aside. Uh, um, yeah, I, uh, I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was real, I was real ready. I had the, I had my, my, my hand on the hip, on the holster, uh, <laughs> when, when, uh, El Dawn of the Dead was was introduced um, but luckily that turned out i think that turned out okay I, I it did turn out okay dawn of the dead that's d-o-n dawn of the dead mm-hmm. and the joke is he's kind of like this old mexican uh like zorro type with a uh skull mask like a like a day of the dead candy skull mask and he speaks with like i i kind of hate it when comics do this especially when they do this like he's got the the 
Mexican accent. He's instead of saying you, he says Ju, J U. And it's like ugh. It's not super great. And then at the very end of his issue, I think that's issue two, it's revealed that Dawn of the Dead is like a blonde guy. Who yeah. has been impersonating being like Mexican so that he can have like his own like cartel in Mexico and stuff. Um and it's very very Pablo Escobar esque in the sense that like or oh, no no wait, was it Pablo Escobar? Like I don't know. One of those guys. Uh, in the sense that, like, he also helps protect the people in, like, the the neighborhoods and stuff like that. He controls the police. Um, he even makes a comment about, like, the only people that don't don't let him do what he wants are, like, the DEA and the FBI. Uh-huh. Um, they want the drugs coming in. He's trying to control it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so oh, yeah, and they had the whole thing about the narco corridos, which is totally a thing. Like, that's that might seem, like... Like an outlandish, or like a joke, like a very uncensored. No, that's accurate. <laughs> like, that's that's absolutely accurate. Like, uh, like I, I, I mean, I don't know how how else to explain it. Like, that is a, a thing of like narco culture. It is to have like their 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 presence done in song and stuff like that. Like like Escobar and like his family. Like I, I believe that they paid like several bands to like make write songs about them that would paint them like in a heroic light you know the people's champion type thing uh so that's that's absolutely that's that's actually on point um interesting yeah yeah did not know that mm-hmm. like the whole thing of like narco corridos like that is like a legitimate like genre of music in mexico yeah i think that okay Let's let's talk about this. Making Dawn of the Dead like this kind of problematic Mexican stereotype who turns out being a white guy who appropriated Mexican culture kind of takes away from the fact that the arc of that issue is Taskmaster gets kidnapped by a drug overlord and gets his way out by agreeing to play in his band, which is awesome. Yes. Yeah, I I I I really like the movie Desperado. <laughs> where sometimes Antonio Banderas has a, um, a guitar in his case, and sometimes it's full of guns, and he fights bad guys. <laughs> so um, yeah, I if maybe maybe if it's like look how problematic this is, and less like hey we're gonna do this thing because it's gonna be funny when he's like hey SA, you know. You you want to know what's uh, more po- problematic than uh, than this whole El Dawn of the Dead? Oh. Is actually Antonio Banderas portraying Mexican characters because he is from Spain. He's not a Mexican. Oh crap! Oh yeah. crap! Interesting. So every time you see Antonio Banderas uh, playing a Mexican role, not not a Mexican. <laughs> I mean, Whoa. I feel like I knew that. It doesn't. I I do feel like I knew that at one point. I was. Uh, I feel like I was tricked. <laughs> you know, Colin. Hey, you know, if it helps, Colin Farrell plays an American a lot, and he's Irish. <laughs> I, I, yeah, but that, I mean, the, I the English do it to the English do it to American white guys too. So like, you know, it yeah, happens. but also I know it's not. I'm not gonna get into the history of one hundred percent not the same. Thing. <laughs> yeah, we were we were colonized, not conquered. So <laughs> you were, uh, you were colon, colonized, feral. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Pack it up, everybody. Here's what I wanted to say something I liked in the beginning um, because I, I, I said, hey, we, have, we should be Taskmaster because I was always interested in his powers and how they worked. And they tell that where he is 
in the diner playing the same song over and over and over again because he's trying to create memories, connecting a song to a memory to a place. And when he has, he's fighting all these guys, and Taskmaster has been used as like the trainer for so many uh, villains and even uh, Cap's replacement once they bring up. And so he's he's going through and listing, like he punches a guy with this move and he remembers a place, he remembers a food that he ate, and he remembers what, like a song that was playing on the radio when he learned it. And he, it goes through and you kind of get, you know, it, it fills out the character more um, in a cool way where we see, um, you know, where, where all of this is coming from. Um, I liked that. Um, can, the art was uh, really good throughout and kind of had this like cool greediness to it. Um, where, like, the background colors, like, you know, there's, like, grit on them, you know. I just got some new brushes for Procreate on the iPad where they have some of those effects, so I've been playing around with that, and so I'm looking at this going, hey, look what they did there, that's cool. So, uh, maybe that was just me, but I uh, I thought that was a cool little detail to, like, you know, show how he operates. Yeah, I, I think my only complaint of that, uh, which is kind of like a, I don't know, a very minor complaint about how they depicted that, was how much of uh taskmaster to cover it up um and it's just mostly that i don't know i want to see taskmaster so like it's really cool that they're showing it that way i kind of wish they would have cut down how much of taskmaster covers up when he's doing like the poses or he's doing the punches like a half and half kind of thing yeah like and that's i mean really that's personal preference that's a, that's a small gripe to have in in kind of uh-huh. in kind of doing that i think it's a neat effect yeah i think it's a neat effect i i think it's good from a storytelling standpoint and it definitely pays off at the end when you get that big splash page where Taskmaster is, uh, beat, like he hits Red Shirt and he's overlaid with Red Shirt's image because he just copied Red Shirt's fighting style. And you know that by doing that, that's going to overwrite his memory of his wife that he just made. So, like, that's good. That was well done. I, I agree to some extent that it's like a little overdone. But I don't know if you needed to over-communicate it so that last bit landed. And frankly, I think it's worth it. Yes, yep. I, I do agree. Also, uh, I think John, John just uh, glazed over this a little bit in his explanation. Uh, <laughs> you mean I left I, room for us to talk about stuff? without? Yes, no, I appreciate myself? that. Because <laughs> Red Shirt, I love that Red Shirt calls itself Red Shirt. Completely oblivious of what that means to popular culture. Yeah. And also the, uh, oh, what was it called? The Minor... The, the, the Minions International Liberation Front. Also known as MILF. Yeah. Which now, I mentioned mean? that, just didn't dive into it, because, yep. Yep. Nope, I, I, I love it. It's one of those jokes that I, th- I... It's one of those jokes where I think if I had read this on a bad day, it probably would have been a little bit more cringe. Uh, <laughs> so so I think I have some inherent bias that I, uh, I had a pretty good day when I read that book. So, <laughs> so that joke to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, yeah, oh, that's, that's funny, guys. Yeah. Cool. So then, so then, I think in probably retrospect, if I if, or if somebody talks to me about this book, apart from you know you two, <laughs> some, <laughs> I think I'd be a little bit more cringy about it. But uh, I, as as I stand today, I approve of that. <laughs> Milfs I, I, have the Aldo seal of approval. Good to know. <laughs> the the joke struck me as just a little bit juvenile. But honestly, like, that and Dawn of the Dead are probably the only jokes in this that didn't really land for me. 
the town of Hitler's, I think, could have been a bad joke, but it, it kind of worked. It was fun. Uh, as, as fun as anything involving Hitler can be. I, I want to point out that uh, the, the Dawn of the Dead joke did not land uh, immediately with me. And it was not till after I was done uh, reading the book and was kind of thinking about <laughs> about that character. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I think part of the reason that the, the Hitler, the town of Hitler's works so well, and I, I swear I brought this up on the podcast before, so forgive me, uh, talking about Lindsay Ellis. One of her best all-time videos is on the producers and the ethics of Nazi satire. It's, it's about uh, Mel Brooks and Mel Brooks' kind of complicated relationship with portraying Hitler. And it's about, like, I, I, the, the main takeaway that I got from the video is if you're going to make fun of Nazis, you have to make them look dumb. It's not enough just to put them in, like, the moral low ground. It's not enough to, like, do the uh, American History X thing where it's obvious that uh, the, the Nazi, or the neo-Nazi, the skinhead lifestyle is causing all sorts of problems because they look cool all the time. The correct way to make fun of Nazis is to do springtime for Hitler. Yep. Yep. Or... On the scale of American History X to springtime for Hitler... Uh, the town full of mediocre Hitler clones who are all bad artists and keep trying to annex each other's yards, that's definitely more in the springtime for Hitler end of the scale. <laughs> yes. It's ridiculous, yeah. and that's kind of great. I think... Uh, have you guys seen Jojo Rabbit? Yeah. Oh, Jojo Rabbit was so Jojo good. Rabbit, I think, lands squarely in the middle of that, um, in, in the sense that it makes fun of them, but also it kind of keeps serious... Like how, like deadly they were. Yeah, which that has nothing to do with this book. But <laughs> oh gosh, now I want to talk about Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I just realized no, I haven't bought it yet, and that might might be Same. what I do after the podcast. It's just buy it and watch it. <laughs> but I don't know if I'm ready oh, to gosh. cry. It's a great film because it's <laughs> I, it's it's. Oh, I saw that movie in a in a plane, and I was not prepared to cry, thousands of feet above the air in a metal tube hurling through the sky. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I was not I was not not ready for that uh, <laughs> I was not ready for this book to kind of get to that emotional uh, kind of climax like I mean you, we, you, we touched on it a little bit uh, when you were talking about you know the effect of him looking like or you know the, the people that he's mimicking kind of overlaid on top of him but uh, man that was a that was actually I, I don't know about you guys I thought that was a strong kind of emotional climax for like the tale um, which kind of surprised me a little bit. I didn't kind of expect it to be so strong or, or even like that. Um, so like the whole idea, so so like that little message that she leaks for Captain America where she's like, you know, I, I know he's forgotten. We were back to square one because he looked at me with like the same eyes that he looks at me all the time when he doesn't remember. And I was like, ooh, my heart. Uh, yeah. Point of order, that is Steve Rogers, not Captain America. Oh my goodness. He's always this America. is, I believe, while uh, was Falcon Captain America at this point? I think I think this later. was Falcon Cap. Um, it might have been Bucky Cap actually. Twenty ten might have been Bucky Cap. Um, but regardless, he, he's just Steve Rogers. He's the top cop of Shield, um, and I'm really glad that he was in this book. I question why the rest of his super team was in this book. 
they had nothing to do. No, like Moon Knight and Ant-Man and Black Widow and Valkyrie didn't need to be in this book. My best guess is that they needed, they were like, we should have it be a team. And the artist was like, I want to draw Moon Knight. And then there you go. <laughs> I, I'd be not? curious. I'd be curious about if that was just the team that was, that he was in charge of at the time. It was the team that he was in charge of at the time. But it, I think they just had a, had it be the whole team so they could put Secret Avengers on the cover of that issue. But the Secret Avengers had nothing to do. No. Rogers had something to do. Rogers belonged in the book. Uh, the rest of the team didn't need to be there. How did you feel about his stance on, on, the, whole, uh, on the whole thing? Um, I mean, he's being a bit of a cop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's fair <laughs> like i i really like steve rogers when he's written as an old lefty i think that's what captain america needs to be if you if you want like very staunch law and order stuff that's what you get tony stark for and also tony stark sucks so <laughs> uh you were, it is Bucky at this point. This is after Dark Reign. Steve Rogers is Steve Rogers. And yeah. Oh, I want to talk a little bit about, because uh, I don't think we've hit it enough. The art. It's great. I, I This guy, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's not like super prolific. I'm assuming it's Hefte Palo, but I don't actually know that. Um, and so apologies if I get it wrong. He's got this style that I tend to associate with uh, like mid-2000s Dark Horse. So uh, a lot of like Mike Mignola and the others that I think of are the uh, Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon, um, who did the uh, Umbrella Academy books. They they did the art for Umbrella. I, Academy I think books. they did Day Tripper as well. Yes, Day Tripper. They did Day Tripper as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the best image to exemplify what I'm talking about is actually on page 13 of issue three. I think is the Hitler issue. Um, and this isn't like super technically great i just love this this sort of style i'm looking at the big that kind of like complete but still rough art right is that i think that's kind of the best way i would describe it it's very geometric and very angular so you've got a wide shot where taskmaster is kind of sitting in the rubble and his wife is just standing in the center of the room and it's her pose that really gets me she's got really like blocky shoulders and solid lines down her skirt her legs are very like they're they don't look like perfectly anatomically drawn legs but there's the right shape and the right contour they're very geometric but they still read as human legs um i i've always liked this effect and i think he does a really good job with it and then when you get the like the in the foreground you've got an image of one of the jars that has a hitler brain and it's like kind of grimy and the glass is cracked and you got water dripping down. Like there are good details deployed where there need to be and where you don't need the details. The shapes are clean and clear and easy to read. And I love it. And I'm kind of bummed that this guy doesn't seem to get more work. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, according to Google, the most recent thing that I can see that he's done is a, like from 2018, I think. Anyway, he's good. I like him. It reminded me of a Spider-Man and Iron Fist like team-up comic from '94. It's um, oh, wow. Spider-Man number forty-three from nineteen ninety-four, um, and it's yeah, Spider-Man and Iron Fist are fighting a bunch of um, like robots. Justin Hammer came up with, I think, 
and it, it, I don't know, I don't know what, what it was like, kind of a bit of a bit of the stylized figures, um, kind of like you were saying, kind of angular in some of it. Um, it's not like just certain aspects of it. It wasn't like that close. And this is this is superior, I think, because we get a lot of the good things about modern comics in here. Um, great coloring and lighting uh, throughout. Uh, cool paneling. Um, and uh, just overall really good. This, this is one where I would say, hey, you, you want to see what comics are all about? I would hand this one over. A really good standalone series to, you know, show the potential of comics, I think. Yeah, it's a good, I think, I talk about the importance of having kind of the, the not the event comic, the, just like, episode three, like the middle of the television season. Mm-hmm. Um you don't need every story to be a world-shattering, continuity-warping event. Uh, I, I like the focus on this character who's kind of a bit player in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, but you get more depth to him. Yeah, you do get a little bit of a retcon of his background. And there are some jokes that I think work better if you know the Marvel history. Yeah. Uh, like the Secret Empire being one of the, the groups that attacks at the beginning. Your your experience is a little bit better for knowing who the Secret Empire were. It's a little bit worse if you like were in school during Trenchcoat Mafia type things like that. Oh, yeah, fair. Oh, oh boy. That was like, oh. Yeah, this isn't top 20, probably not even top 30, but it's good. It is very much in the good part of the list when we get to that point. No, I think this is a solid book. This is, you know, why I read comics is fun, fun stuff like this. Yeah, uh, a lot, a lot better than I expected it, especially with uh, our podcast history with uh, with Mister Van Lenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad we finally got something good because again, I have a lot of positive associations with the guy, and I've been really second guessing him. It's like, oh, good. No, he he does good work from time to time. This is a good. Yeah. One. I yeah. do. Oh, man, that sounded like such a burn on on Fred Van Lente. No, Since no, I had th- rough experience with the books that we've read. Yeah, I mean, but also like out of out of how many like dozens of books has he read? We've read three. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's might, might have just been a bad luck of the draw, or you know, third time's the charm. I feel like we need like a really fast disclaimer played real quiet, like a car commercial in a in a like a radio ad, yeah, like you know, like an announcer was like, oh, "We respect all comics creators for the work that they provide to us, and uh, we understand that we're regular schmoes who don't have any published works like they do, and uh, we may crap on them, but we understand that yes, they are, they are <laughs> professionals and go out there and do this every day, and good for them, and all of that. And now on with the show where we say why they're garbage. You know, like there should be like a little like, all thing. Yeah, all things being equal, this was not a great book, but we do acknowledge that. Yeah, good for them for getting their foot in the door at all because it's it's. Really hard unless you're uh, friggin' whoever did that Eminem and Punisher friggin' garbage. <laughs> that was Fred Van Lent. <laughs> Boy, I just uh, shot myself in the foot there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, that's like full circle, but it comes around and bites you right in the butt. That's. All right, with that, should we move on? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> This, yeah, probably before this parachute's he a knapsack. Oh. <laughs> uh, he's gonna—he's never gonna run out of bullets, so we should probably move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, that means it's my turn. That means it's your turn, Aldo. Yep. Oh, uh, so, <laughs> so we read Ultimate Spider-Man Volume Two, 
which is the introduction, well, not the int- uh, kind of the introduction. It's the beginning of the Miles Morales arc of the Ultimate Spider-Man, the Ultimate Universe Spider-Man comics, uh, before they got merged in in Secret Wars twenty fifteen. And this is uh, like I'm gonna follow John's example, uh, or I guess Stephen's example technically. I don't. know, It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it's Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli, right? Yeah, yeah. well, thanks. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and, oh, don't forget, Colors <laughs> colors by uh, by the late Justin Ponser. Oh, that's right, yes. yes. I'm glad you, you pointed mm-hmm. that out. Who did the lettering? Uh, the lettering was uh, Corey Petit. Okay, Corey Pettit. Corey Pettit, yeah, that pops up Listen. a lot on our list, I think. Okay. <laughs> I have no rebuttal. <laughs> which, which, for some reason, so I associate Pacelli's art with with Ultimate Spider-Man, like, quite a bit, that I forget that it was Mark uh, Bagley who did the original. It was Mark Bagley. Yeah, he, he was the original artist for it, and I forget about that. And I think it's because for a while, I th- and I, I don't know if that record's been broken, but Pacelli was on Ultimate Spider-Man for so long that I think they broke a record for the most consistent writer-artist duo on a book. They might be. But uh, I, but now but now I'm not sure if that was Bendis and Pacelli or Bendis and Bagley. I don't know anymore. Everything blurs together when you're old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so, yeah. So this so this is the beginning of of Miles Morales' story. Which um, if you have seen Into the Spider Verse, you've kind of got the broad strokes of it here, um, or vice versa, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because they—I mean—they definitely, I mean, they definitely paid a lot of. I don't want to say homage because they—they they took a lot of stuff from this book, but they obviously like repurposed it to work for like a two-hour narrative, uh, a little better, right? So, right. so, so we have this whole relationship with with Miles and his dad and, and his family, right? Like his—he's half Hispanic, half half uh, half black. And it starts out with him going to a lottery to get accepted into was I think it was Horizons. Actually, I'm not. I don't think it was Horizons. Um, it, it is. It's a charter school. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, Brooklyn Horizons. It's yeah, not not the Horizons Lab. It's um, yeah, Brooklyn Visions. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. So so it starts out with him kind of getting accepted into this. He kind of we, you know, we kind of get. A really good characterization of, of Miles in the sense that he's not exactly happy that that's this is how he gets accepted. Um, part of it is that he feels like maybe he does he hasn't earned it, but also a little bit of guilt because while they're at this lottery, there's just a lot of families there, and you see you know kids crying and parents crying because their kid didn't get in. So he gets excited, uh, and he goes over to his uncle's to kind of celebrate, tell him the good news. And while he's there, he gets bitten by a spider, which was previously shown as sneaking onto his uncle, a.k.a. the Prowler's uh, bag of stolen goodies that he stole from from Oscorp. And, you know, he passes out. He gets bit by the spider, passes out, wakes up, and kind of gets his his dad and his uncle get into an argument. We get some history there. And because it's the Ultimate Universe, the Ultimate Universe has a similar but still a little different relationship with mutants and kind of superpower folks. In general, they're not very happy about them, and they hate mutants even more. So, so there. So he has like this real fear that he's become a mutant and not, or that he has he was a mutant, and he kind of doesn't want to. You know, he doesn't want to deal with that. He just wants to be normal. So he tells his friend Genki, or Gank. 
I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. And I, I feel like you. I was. I don't know either. So. Yeah, I feel like nobody knows, and that's why they uh, when they when they, when they stole him for homecoming, uh, they just called him Ned. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> yeah. Which boy did not get me started on my homecoming rant. Uh, <laughs> oh, we've heard it. Yeah, I, I think it'll say, come at up at least again. once and probably five times. <laughs> yes, I will never let you that have die. a point. You have a point. Yes. But, uh... as, listen, as long as we are all. We all agree squirrely on the fact that I had a point. <laughs> I'm I'm, comp- I'm happy with that. So so he discovers so he discovers he has these powers. He's kind of experimenting, learning about them. Uh, obvious differences is that he has his uh kind of chameleon effect. He can go invisible, and he has his uh, venom sting. Um, so he's kind of you know c- kind of getting to know this a little bit better, and 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 this is all happening before the death of Peter Parker. So when their school goes on lockdown from the events of Ultimatum, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Say so they had like two pretty big like world events, right next to each other, and I can't ever remember them. But but one of them was Ultimatum, and that's the one that's happening, and that's the one where they where they hear the kids and are hiding in um in the gym at the school, and they hear that Spider Man's been shot, so he sneaks out and he sees Peter Parker die at, at the big climactic battle. Where he fights the Green Goblin and, and cries, and I'm not gonna get started on that because I'm not ready for tears today. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you for sparing yeah. us. So yeah, so so he kind of feels a little bit of guilt. He goes back. He talks to to Genki, uh, which is what I'm just gonna call him. That just feels right for some reason, Genki. Uh, so so he talks to Genki. He feels guilt. He's like, you know, if I hadn't been rejecting my powers, if I hadn't done, if I hadn't immediately gone out there and done this stuff, you know, I could have. I could have helped him fight the Green Goblin. I could have, I could have helped him stay alive. And, you know, Genki kind of rightfully points out, he's like, yeah, or you could be dead. And and maybe it's not your job to have, like, worked with Spider-Man. Maybe your job is to replace Spider-Man. Like, the, you know, New York needs a Spider-Man. So he, so he decides to kind of go into it. Uh, Genki gives him his old Halloween outfit that he paid $80 for. <laughs> and immediately, uh, he kind of starts out real bad. And he's kind of on the news. Nobody likes him because they think it's kind of disrespectful. I mean, kind of rightfully so. They think it's a bad taste that he's dressing up as Peter Parker and trying to be Spider-Man and kind of sucking at it. Eventually, he gets into a fight with Spider-Woman, who I believe is Jessica Drew, who is a clone of Peter Parker. Yeah. Oh, gosh. She's a clone? I... Yes. Oh, Spider-Man. Uh, Ultimate, clones. Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh. Yeah, Ultimate Spider Weird book. Ultimate Spider Man likes clone. Ultimate Universe liked clones. Not for the best either. <laughs> uh but uh so so yeah, so he gets into this into this fight, he gets taken to the Triskelion, and Nick Fury is kind of, you know, giving a talking to and telling him like like, hey, uh probably shouldn't do this, you're not ready for this, blah blah blah. And then he fights Electro and and defeats him. Helps, well, helps defeat him after kind right. of everybody has uh, kind of been taken down already a little bit, including Iron Man, you know, Steven's favorite superhero. Yay! Especially <laughs> Ultimate Iron Man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so so once once they wrapped it up, uh, next day at school, Jessica Drew meets, meets with Miles Morales and gives him a briefcase, kind of telling him that, that Nick Fury 
uh, or you know Samuel Jackson has given him one chance. And he's like, oh wow. He's like, yeah. Prior to to the events, you had no chance, and now now you have been given one. Like, don't mess it up. And so it ends with him like triumphantly swinging around in the suit. Well, not swinging, like jumping around because he doesn't have web shooters yet. And right. so that's kind of the end of the first like arc, which is just kind of the introduction to Miles Morales. Yep. It's hard to it's hard yeah it's hard to talk about it because it was just really solid, and they lay the groundwork for a lot of stuff. And I found it to be a good complimentary, uh, just compliment piece to the Spider Verse movie because I think that they, you know, did they kept it in the same spirit of this, and so neither one of them necessarily it didn't feel like they contradicted each other as much as like, oh this is this is how you tell the story same story in a comic medium compared yeah. to films. I, I think one so. I think one of the things that surprised me, and I feel like we're gonna be talking about Spider Verse a bit in this conversation. A bit. I, I use most of my conversations end up going there, so Yeah. <laughs> I, I think legitimately one of the things that surprised me quite a bit was how much or yeah, just just how much Spider Verse actually does kind of stick to this storyline. Uh and it's be and it surprises me because it's been a long time since I read these issues. Uh, I was reading these, uh, I think, just about when they were coming out. So almost, oh boy, almost uh, ten years ago. Because <laughs> this, uh, you know, these books came out yeah. at the end of twenty eleven. Oh boy, that's a that's but, a long uh, time. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it should have been. I mean, that wasn't. It doesn't feel that long ago. But when you sit and think about it, you're like, oh crap. That yeah. Oh. Yeah, so so I mean, some of the some of the major things that like kind of surprised me was that like I mean, ob- obviously I I remember the relationship between his uncle and his dad like that was a pretty big thing and that that was pretty that was kept pretty intact in the in the movie. The thing that surprised me because I totally spaced it watching Spider Verse was the whole idea of him being there when Peter Parker died in a fight against the Green Goblin, and that yeah. and that guilt of of feeling like maybe he should have been able to help him out or something like that. Or if he had if he had tried from the get go. Yeah, exactly. You know, if right. he was a, if he was as excited as Gank or Gank, or, you know whatever his buddy's name is about being <laughs> a hero, because his his friend can't get over it. His friend's like, "Dude, you have powers. You could be a hero." And he's like, "I don't want to be a hero." And I'm with Gank. It's like, why 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 wouldn't you? But you know. <laughs> I <laughs> I also love that like when he shows off his power, the first thing he does is like he blows up his very intricate Lego ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! I felt they stole that for, for one of the Spider-Man drops, movies. Yeah, oh homecoming. wow! Who would have seen that coming? He dra- <laughs> was that Homecoming that, or Far that was from Home? Either way, homecoming. That was they're homecoming. doing the they're oh, doing the Death man. Star because Far From Home, he, his buddy already knows that he's Spider-Man. Yeah, and uh, it's sad because in the comics they're doing a pirate ship Lego model that I had as a kid. It's like the same thing, <laughs> and then in the in the movie, it's you know the big Death Star, uh, huge thing that takes hours and hours, and he just drops it and it makes a huge mess. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Which you know, actually, uh, now that I think about it, kind of helps tie into that whole joke about him talking about uh, Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and he has that Lego Death Star. He talks about, well, he definitely talks about Empire. In oh, it's Empire. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know, uh, brand synergy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so. So yeah, so that kind of surprised me. Kind of rereading, rereading this again, I was just like, oh yeah, that was yeah. That's I don't know. If, <laughs> I hate that it's almost a ten year old book because I hate to use this word, but it felt nostalgic. Uh, it reminded it reminded <laughs> me a lot of the first time I, I read this book, and I think 
I think it's... I mean, there's definitely, I guess, something problematic of a black Hispanic superhero being written by two, uh, by two, you know, white people. Um, but I think they do a good job at respecting the character by kind of writing him as a character first and not necessarily mm-hmm. a stereotype. Kind of like, like the opposite of what we saw in Aranya. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've talked a little bit about Bendis writing black characters before. John, you, you know it better than I do. Probably worth restating, but he, he adopted a black uh, child, didn't he? I believe he has two daughters uh, that are black. Now, now I'm going to have to check because I don't... <laughs> Sleep deprivation just, just kills your short-term memory, <laughs> i got to tell you. Um, I'll look that up. I think it's Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah. But now I'm questioning it. But I will look that up while you guys talk amongst yourselves. I think they really did a good job of laying the groundwork. And it and at first, when I heard the news, like there was going to be a new Spider-Man and he was going to be, um, uh, you know, Hispanic and black, I was like, is this just so that, like, they can, you know, add diversity for diversity's sake? And I didn't get it. And then they were like, well, he's not replacing Peter Parker. He's going to be a Spider-Man in addition to Peter Parker. And I was like, oh, all right, whatever. Then do what you want. And then now that I see it, I'm like, man, that I I was on the wrong side of that and didn't get what was going on. And we are. Do you know? Do you know who else didn't get it? Uh, all the people who wrote letters in the back of the first issue. Oh my gosh, those were fantastic. I love that they did that. I love that they did that because then it puts. Uh, I forget there was a yeah. This is. I almost like just quoted this word because it, it's Greg Capullo's talks about Greg Capullo talks about that happening when he was doing Spawn and he became not just the inker but the penciler and they let people know and they printed the letters where everyone was pissed and then that puts everybody else's backs up and they come to his defense saying those people don't know what they're talking about and screw them and he you know he's great or whatever i think that's the same thing you see these letters and they're like you're just like oh why would you write that what's your problem why are you, why are you so mad about Peter Parker, like, not being the only Spider-Man. Like, what's your deal? Yeah. And I think that that was a, a good move to, like, you know, include the the backlash from people. And you can see just how wrong it is. So, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't mad, but I was worried that it was a move just for the sake of, you know, making it more diverse without, without you know, telling a good story. It was just going to be, you know, a, 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 like a publicity thing. I don't even know what I thought because I was wrong. Um, and not being like super excited because this is great. You want you want to hear my hottest take? Go on. Well, probably not my hottest take, but this is up there. Um, the biggest problem with Miles Morales is that they introduced him by killing Ultimate Peter Parker and not mainstream Marvel Peter Parker. Oh, I I mm. you know I think that was also my one of my biggest complaints as well because I think especially because the Ultimate Universe had kind of been done as like a, this reboot and they had gone so uh, so many questionable routes <laughs> it no, yeah seriously it, though, right? yeah it really felt like it really at least you know back in the day it felt like we're doing this because the ultimate universe is a safe place to fail and it almost felt like they didn't have confidence yeah yeah that, that might actually be true but here's the thing like this was always my thought, and this was obvious. Bendis said it explicitly. I think I, I have the art book for Into the Spider-Verse, and I've been reading through that recently. 
and I think Bendis said this there, where he talked about how the best way for Peter Parker, for his story to end, was for him to become Uncle Ben to someone else. And that's what happens. Yeah. We don't really get that, because I think the, the best Uncle Ben stuff is actually in the Death of Peter Parker story in Ultimate Comics, which is really good, and I think we'll have to read that at some point. Um, but you get some really good moments kind of stemming from this, where Miles realizes that, like, he, he takes this guilt, and you can, it, it's a very natural sort of uh, extension of his character that's established, I think it's, we, we mentioned this already, page 10 of issue 1 is when Miles gets into the magnet school, and he sees, like, he wins the lottery, but all he can see is everybody else who's sad about it. Like, Miles is a person who feels community responsibility very deeply. And the only thing that keeps him from acting on that responsibility is, you know, his fear. The, he is a mutant, and therefore he's going to be rejected and persecuted and hated. And that fear keeps him from acting. And then, when Peter Parker dies, Miles starts beating himself up and is like, that fear kept me from getting involved sooner when I could have had help from the real Spider-Man and gotten the training. And maybe I could have been there with him and saved his life. I don't know. Maybe I could have. And that, that sense of lost opportunity is, is, you know, now Peter is the Uncle Ben to the new Spider-Man. And that's the perfect way for Peter Parker's story to end. Yeah. It's like, we've had, we've figured this out. The best way for Batman's story to end is for Batman to train the next generation of heroes that can be just as effective as him without having all of the baggage. I was like, you mean like Dark Knight Returns? Oh. I thought, I thought you were going to say that the best way for Batman to end was going to be for him to become a Thomas Wayne. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Not the pearls. <laughs> oh, gosh. But no, the best way for Batman to end is to pass the legacy on to other heroes who have all of his effectiveness, but none of his trauma because he made the world better for them. Like, that's what happened with Robin. That's what happened with Batman Beyond. The best way for, like, others... The Flash. The best way for The Flash to end is to die saving the world and have somebody else take up his mantle who has the same powers. That's what happened to Barry Allen when he passed the mantle on to Wally West. Like, we figured this out in the 90s at DC Comics. Legacy heroes are the best way to inject new blood into a franchise and pay respect to the old character. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 616 Peter Parker should have died and passed the mantle on to Miles Morales in 616. This is the way to retire heroes and have the IP continue. You get fresh new stories with an interesting perspective and there's literally no reason you can't tell stories from earlier in the history and reuse Peter Parker or Barry Allen or any of these other characters that you've technically seen off. And it's such a shame that the, the established, like the old heroes keep coming back and kind of like robbing these new characters of the yeah. limelight. You mean, you mean kind of how Peter Parker came back from the dead in the ultimate Spider-Man comics? Wait, he came back from yes. the dead in the ultimate Spider-Man comics? <laughs> yes. Nobody ever stays dead in comics. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. Nobody liked it. Oh gosh, that's awful. <laughs> yes, it is. It's real bad. Yeah. How, however, I will say that you know, on top of you know, kind of what you just said that you know, that's 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 kind of the perfect way to inject a new character. I think even regardless of of that, right? Because you know, like you mentioned, like we've said, six one six 
Peter Parker is still around. And like I just mentioned, uh, Ultimate uh, Peter Parker comes back. <laughs> I, I I think I think part of like what is kind of surprising is that not surprising. And really in retrospect, it's not surprising, but at the time it was, is that Miles was such a strong character, such a well written character that he is still around. He is still like he. I mean, he leads his own Spider Man book. Yeah. Uh-huh. He has, and he's on a know, team up like a young or an Avengers. Kind of, I think. Yeah. Secret, oh, he, I forget what the team he is. He has been. I don't know what the Marvel. status of that is now. Yeah. yeah. You know, he has like his own video game. Like he, his name is on the box art. He has one of the best animated films of all time. And it's, you know, all the, like some of the best uh, Spider-Man stuff that's come out recently has been, you know, just whitewashing the really good stuff from him. So like, <laughs> so, so, you know, I think, I think this is was this was just an extremely solid foundation for a character, and you know in retrospect it's not a surprise that like he was he's such a such a mainstay now of 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 the comics and I and I think you know kind of regardless of the fact that Peter Parker is still alive in the six one six universe, I I think that he's kind of formed his own niche his own kind of brand of being Spider Man in in the comics um and they and i think it's actually been really good because it's allowed peter parker to grow as like an actual person and keep miles as kind of the grounded neighborhood spider-man and it's good that he you know passed along i guess he does have you know he sticks to walls and he has the agility and the strength and the speed he has his own unique powers but he has the common thing the power of guilt (laughs) indeed can I tell you my favorite thing about the art? Uh, is it all of it? <laughs> <laughs> but there's one thing in particular that I that is like my absolute favorite thing. Sarah Pacelli, really good. Uh, Justin Posner, I'm, I'm really glad that I did that uh, video or that, that fill-in issue of the podcast on on uh, Justin Ponzer when, when he passed last year. Because uh, it helped me to kind of recognize what makes his art so good. He does a really good job with the lighting and everything. Um, but the, the number one thing, my favorite thing about the art, is that Miles Morales is a kid who looks like a kid. He oh. looks like a 13-year-old boy. He just has all of the emotions, all of the like confidence or lack thereof of a 13-year-old kid. He you know, gets really down on himself emotionally one minute, and then he does something cool. And he's like, cool. It's just like, I don't know, he feels, he everything from the writing to the art itself makes him feel like a real kid. And I love the kid superhero. Yeah. yeah. It's so good. I'm glad that they did that because, you know, we, we had that uh, Avengers Christmas story with, um, you know, Magneto's coming to dinner and the little baby <laughs> is... Like almost grotesque, <laughs> just like oh, it's gosh. like a little a little adult, you know. It's this this like mature face. Um, it's refreshing to see that in comics. My only complaint with Sarah Pacelli's art: everything looks good except the faces are a little static. The poses are a little too like photographic. Really? I think that like you know the anatomy's good and like the the poses are all great. It's just it they're a little it's a little stiff. Um, where like the faces like uh, I don't know they let them breathe a little bit because it's it's a bit too neat and tidy. Huh. I I don't I don't but, get and that. that's like the nit, it's the nitpickiest of nitpicks because yeah. this is a this is a great book. All these. Yeah, I 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't get that. But at the same time, I, I've probably, I don't know that, maybe idolize is the right word, but like, at least for me, Pacelli is in like my top three artists of all time. Mm-hmm. So, so at least for me, and granted, you know, pretty, pretty big amount of bias. I discovered her through, through Spider-Man. <laughs> and then, it, and I, then it's you and me, Steven. We're in the top three of all those favorite artists. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the way it works. No, wait. Let me uh, let me reiterate that. Top five of my favorite <laughs> artists. <laughs> but um, so so I don't know. I'm not gonna say her art is flawless. I don't think anybody's art is flawless. But I think for her, it's uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's great. It's fantastic, and I and I and I love it. But I will recognize that I have a huge amount of bias uh, towards her art, um, and I I don't know I kind of love the way she draws. Uh, I like the way she draws people of color, because they never feel like a caricature, and and yeah. and the features that they have feel real, and they don't like I said they don't feel like a caricature. Like granted, uh, Nick Fury looks like Samuel Jackson, and that's a very on purpose thing. <laughs> but but Miles Morales and his dad and his uncle like they don't look they don't feel like like their characters they don't look like like that stereotypical guy from the hood or whatever right like they feel like they look yeah. and they feel like real people yeah a lot of thought went into these yes designs, exactly. I think yeah but uh but yeah I, I don't know I, I'm really fan of the art and uh you know the same way that like uh uh Delgado and who's the colors that always works with Delgado Anyways, um, but just like that pairing to me, Ponser and Pacelli, it's like that art style has been like, inseparable to me for so many years, and I don't know what, I don't know who is the colorist for for Pacelli anymore. So I don't know how her art looks, uh, you know, in kind of the modern comics. But I'd be curious to find out because I think that the the line work itself is is fantastic, and I believe she did her own inking in these books yeah she's her own inker i wore myself out with my tirade earlier i don't actually have anything else to say what do you guys what else do you guys want to say about this book i would just be piling on like it's great it's it's really well done i think it's um when we read ms marvel no normal like we talked about how it's follows the spider-man model and you know like the teen superhero and everything and that and that was and that was good but you know it was a little familiar um and I, th- I mean, this this relies on that obviously because it's you know kid gets bit by a spider gets spider powers, but um, I think both of them are able to you know put enough of their own t- uh, their own spin on it, their own takes with it, so that we can read that same type of story without it getting you know to be old to to be like oh here we go here's a new oh no they're unsure of themselves oh here they go they learn their powers and they're tested and oh they succeed against all odds okay mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This, I mean, we don't really get into that very much. Like he fights Electro, but we, um, you know, I think the next big arc does he confront Prowler? I forget. I, re- I read this a long time ago. It, yeah, the next arc is called Prowler. I there believe. you go. Okay. Yeah, I, I think my only complaint with this book, um, I kind of to go off of what John was saying or with a comparison of Miss Marvel. But granted, I don't think this was the team to work on that on that particular issue, and it's the fact that like this. At least this arc, right? Like this first five issue arc, out of soon to be hundreds, it doesn't really touch with like his whole identity of race, the same way that Miss Marvel does. Right. And yeah. you know, like we mentioned previously, I don't think the writer, the the writer or the team, the creative team on this, 
I don't think those were the people to tell the story. And in a sense, I'm happy that they didn't. But it, it would have been nice to have a writer sooner to be able to touch on on that. And and to be fair, yeah. I haven't kept up with all those with all the Miles Morales comics, so I don't know if it has come up. And I'm sure it has. With uh, the current writer being Saladin Ahmed, it's definitely come yeah. up. Also, I didn't know this, but uh, but one of the editors uh, on this arc, or I don't know if, if it's on the whole arc, um, or the whole run, I guess that's the word I was looking for, uh, Sana Amanat is one of the editors. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, since we brought up Ms. Marvel, uh, I actually did, did remember one other thing that I wanted to say about this. I like this book a lot. This doesn't work for me quite as well as the first arc of Ms. Marvel, um, it's not strictly because of the, the like, identity thing. Um, but with Ms. Marvel, one of the things that I think really works so well in that book, is one of the things that I like so much, is the way that the uh, story and the character arc are so closely aligned. Ms. Marvel, or uh, Kamala Khan, is trying to, like, get more sure with her own identity... And by, you know, she gets these shape-shifting powers that kind of let her explore what it might be like to be like another person. Um, and then she, met, like, becomes her own person, gets more comfortable with her own skin, and comes up with her own identity. Like, that fits really well. The superhero side of things fits really well with the emotional side of things. Here, it doesn't work quite as well, because... The, the big emotional climax of this story is Miles becoming Spider-Man and getting the acknowledgement of, like, Nick Fury and Jessica Drew and Tony Ratfink Stark. And so, <laughs> like, that disconnect between the character arc and the story arc, it's not a problem. Don't get me wrong. It's not a problem. It's just what keeps this from being, like... As high as Ms. Marvel, when in almost every other respect, it's at least as good. It's that tightness between the character arc and the story arc that really keeps Ms. Marvel at number one for me. Well, you uh, bring up the ranking. Should we see where this does fit in? Yeah, I do think that it's time for that. Let's let's go ahead and pull up our list, um, which currently has 130 stories on it. Yay! That's a lot of stories. Our top 20 is currently gatekept by the Winter Soldier story arc from Captain America. Um, and that's where we're getting, like, those are some of the best of the best comics. Um, whereas I think the bad comics, like the really bad stories, I'm going to say that those begin around uh, 111, so almost the bottom 20, actually. Galacta, Daughter of Galactus. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's definitely on the bad list. <laughs> yeah. So, where do we want to rank these stories? Uh, Taskmaster, I think I think I agree. Um, it's uh, maybe not like top twenty. Um, I probably will want to put it higher than you guys. Um, it just really, you know, hit everything I'm looking for in a comic. Um, I I would put it. I don't know where it is, but I would definitely put it above Moon Knight wherever we had Moon Knight. Oh yeah. Uh, I think that's a good that's a good comparison. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I liked it better than Karnak, which it felt similar where we're, you know, like the tone of it and the art and kind of felt similar in the 
focus on a, a lesser known character and we get to see them and all of their skills, which are, you know, touched upon, but maybe not the focus of any other story that felt similar to me, but I liked this better. Um, it was a tighter story, I think. Um, so I would put it above that and looking in that area, that's the, the mid twenties there. Um, I would put it under runaways volume one at uh, 25. Wow. I think that's, this... is that higher than I would want to go? I think that's a little higher than I'd want to go. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of inclined to agree with John, but at the same time, I'm easily malleable at where, I, where I'm at right now. No, you're not. No, you're not. Stand firm. In your <laughs> well, like, well, like I, I, I was didn't... just making an opening. I was just making an opening bid. But now that I see that I have uh, you know, <laughs> won some ground here, Stephen can go rank whatever he wants somewhere else. Well, you made that really apt comparison to Karnak, which I think is uh, as equal a comparison to Moon Knight. Uh, uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in between there my problem is I have a hard time putting any book above a book that uh, that yells scuttlebutt like a th- at least three times yeah <laughs> I forgot about that that is a scuttlebutt a valid point no it's not <laughs> oh, uh, but I, I don't know I, I think I think I kind of like this a little better than In Pursuit of Flight but not more than like Black Bolt I definitely like it better in Pursuit of Flight. I, I get the importance of Captain Marvel and having that story, and it's a it's not a bad story, but I don't know. It's just, it's not, eh. Okay, I can get behind Black Bolt as a ceiling. Like, I, I, I think the Captain Marvel story is really good, but, um, like, this is not bad. And, yeah, I, I think I could put it between uh, or number 26 in between Black Bolt and in Pursuit of Flight. I can agree with that. I mean, are we in agreement, son? It sounds like I think we are. Oh, look at that. John got his way. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Excuse me. I want to go turn on the confetti. Good opening statement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. But where do we put Miles then? Because this this Spider-Man story definitely goes higher than that, right? It does. And here's my conflict with the Spider-Man story is how much of it do we rank on the story itself as opposed to the legacy of the character? Like, the legacy's not nothing. Yeah, because that's why that's why the Steve Ditko, like, if this be... What is the what is the title of the Spider-Man? Like, if, if this be my destiny? If this be my destiny is pretty high, I think, because of the legacy. Yeah, but it's also a good story. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think the legacy is has got to be part of the equation, right? But just because a story has a lot of legacy doesn't necessarily mean it ranks very high. I mean, look at Secret Wars, the original. Look at <laughs> Marvel Comics number one. Like, those stories didn't get super high on our list because they've got great legacy. Like, a lot of legacy. But they, that doesn't necessarily make... It doesn't outweigh the fact that they were kind of mediocre as stories, right? Yeah. So this has good legacy and it's a good story. I I am I am inclined to just... I'm going to do an, uh, uh, just a... Uh, uh, Opening pitch here, uh, number 11 is kind of where, where I'm thinking. But I, mm. again, like I have to preface everything I say about Spider-Man, I have immense bias. <laughs> so. Triumph and Torment is Doom, Doctor Doom, and Doctor Strange, right? Yes. Yep. And Mike okay. Mignola. And Mike Mignola. And Mike Mignola. Yep. Although, I kind of want to put this above Spider-Island. Uh, I mean, hey, I am okay with that. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not, but I've I have been screwed by democracy. 
Where, where do you want to put this? I think 11 is fine. I'm, I think that's fair. Um, I'm looking at what's around that area. I personally, Spider Island, I like that better. Um, if we take if we take Spider Verse out of the equation, um, Spider Island's kind of where I jumped back into Spider Man, and I think you know, gun to my head. Well, I don't know. See, it's either Spider Man or X Men. Gun to my head, I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think under Stevens' point, uh, I think one of the things that maybe gives this a leg up on Spider Island is that it's a little less convoluted with its villain storyline. What are you talking about? You can't make any sense of Madame Webb and the... Uh, uh, What's his name? The Gremlin? Really, I don't remember his name. The really member, the Hobgoblin and the Green Goblin and the really... The Jackal. The Jackal, the jackal and the other memorable villains. <laughs> <laughs> the Spider Queen or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. J. Jonah Jameson turned into a spider drone, you know? <laughs> the whole... the whole t- Everyone in New York lost their clothes. It was a naked city. yeah um i don't know like i feel like spider island as an event was fine um obviously better than fine it's number 10 on our list (laughs) but um i think spider island lacks like the legacy of miles morales the introduction of miles morales and i like i I know that story and legacy kind of have to go together but Miles has both. And Spider Island, I think, only has the one. I mean, they do reference, like, a lot of Spider-Man lore in it, but I, it is missing Miles Morales. So I will I will concede that, yes, this is a more fitting top ten. Yeah, I, I think in the sense <sighs> of, of legacy, I think the only thing Spider... Because Spider Island doesn't really have, like, a huge story legacy, but it does have the, the character legacy that this is essentially where Peter Parker says nobody will die as long as I'm around anymore. That predates Spider Island. Never mind that. I take that back. My argument is invalid. <laughs> Why do I try? I, mean, he, I used to have that book. It predates Spider Island. He and his girlfriend Carly break up. He loses uh, yeah. the uh, the magical protection of Doctor Strange because he outs himself as Spider Man. Not saying that he is the Spider Man, but he show, shows people that he has spider powers because everybody has spider powers. Yeah. So that's oh yeah. Don't something. don't forget the don't forget the part where she uh, she guilts him. Because she tells him straight off the bat that she has spider powers. And she's like, yep. hey, if you had spider powers, you'd tell me, right? I'm telling you. It's like, yep. oof. Oof. Guilt. Part of the Spider-Man canon. A lot of guilt. Yep. Yeah, okay, we can put it in number 10. <laughs> All right. Putting it in number 10. Oh, that's been a while since anything broke the top 10. A long while. Yep. I mean, not since uh, Spider Island was the last book to break the top 10, actually. Oh, oh yeah. That's uh, episode 44. Before that, it was Vision. And then after that, it was, uh, geez, episode 19. Yeah, we've got a pretty good top 10. Um, It'll be interesting to see if these next stories get anywhere near there. Um, Our next episode, we are reading a story that I really like and a story that John, I don't know if you really like it, but you've been wanting us to read it for a while. It it is the... It is not my favorite, but it is connect. It, it connects my two favorite stories. So yep, we're gonna we're gonna read the Messiah War event. This is what happens to Cable and Hope Summers as they flee into the future, trying to get away from um, Bishop, who was hunting them in Messiah Complex. And this is what happens before Second Coming, which is the return of yeah. Hope as an as a young woman. Uh, which leads into 
I think it comes after Schism and leads into AVX. So, yeah. So Messiah of War uh, is a seven-issue event. It kicks off with X Force Cable Messiah War Prologue, and then it alternates between the Cable and X Force series in uh, two thousand eight. Uh, and it looks like it features Strife, which. Who boy, break out your, your Alec Guinness voice. That's the name I've not oh, heard a long, long time. time. He he was in one of the first comics I ever got. It was like when Strife was introduced was like, that's when I was reading comics as a kid. I'm certain that Steven has a card of him somewhere with all of the Once upon cards. a time, I definitely did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, was collecting, I was collecting cards in the 90s, and you better believe Strife was a thing that was happening in the 90s. Might be the most thing that was happening in the 90s, like, seriously? Well, the shoulder pads alone, you know, like... Oh, gosh. Shoulder cover. Oh, my gosh. Actually, we didn't, anyway. talk, we didn't talk a lot about the minor villains in, uh, in Taskmaster, but when they showed off the Cyber Ninjas, I was like, oh, that's a 90s thing. And they actually were a 90s thing. That was a real... Like, some of those gangs were made up by Fred yeah. Van Lente, yeah. but not them. Yeah, no, well, yeah. they have a they have a thing at the end of, was it, issue one or two, where, like, they go through each of the gangs? Yeah, issue I, one, yeah. Yeah, when I looked at the Cyber Ninjas and they debuted sometime in the 90s, I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Um, Speaking of the 90s, our second story actually comes from uh the 1998 series of Fantastic Four, but it was actually published in 2003. Um... <laughs> This is a four-issue story arc by uh, Mark Wade and Mike Mer- Mike Waringo. Oh my gosh, I can't say his name. Mike Waringo. Um, Fantastic Four issues number six, seven, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, and seventy. The unthinkable story arc. Well, I mean, somebody had to think of it, right? And they had to write it. Mark Wade did, which I <laughs> I wonder how this is going to shape our opinion of him. Uh, also, <laughs> never mind. I'll save it for the podcast. <laughs> for a second there i was like we're on the podcast now aldo we're here and now i want to know it's not gonna be good i can tell you that right now come on aldo i'm, I'm, I'm just 2021 i'm new year new you I, i'm just saying if paul mccartney had to have a comic artist uh he would he would he would say like oh i can't have any other artists except moringo <laughs> All right, good night, everybody. 